Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Ellis Avery. Carefully crafted prose and characters we come to love are just part of why Ellis Avery's writing has won many honors. She is the only writer to twice receive the Stonewall Award for Outstanding GLBT Fiction. Her latest book, The Family Tooth, explores life, death, and profound emotion with the same precision and depth. What does it mean when everything we think we know falls away? Alice, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. It's an honor to join you. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited to talk with you today, and I'm really thrilled to be sharing this conversation right before the release of your new book, The Family Tooth, which comes out on November 6th. But before we talk about that and a lot of other amazing things, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? I have two kinds of really, really good students that I teach, and One kind of student says, I have this idea in my head and I try and I use writing to try to make it to to come as close to that idea as possible. And the other kind of really good student says, I know I want to write something, but I don't know what I have to say about it until I've written it. And I feel like I'm that second kind of student where something better happens in my brain when I'm writing than when I'm speaking. So it's a way to know my better self and my more articulate self Hmm. and to reach out to other people and to hopefully connect with their selves that don't necessarily come first when they're speaking. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot from writers who have a certain quality to their written work that is very, it has a depth and a reflection in it, regardless of form or genre, that is really something profound to experience in writing. And for me, I have that experience when I read your words. Uh, whether it's one of your novels or poetry or your latest work, which is a collection of memoir essays. It's called The Family Tooth, and it is a story of grief and triumph and what it means to be a daughter and really, I think, what it means when everything that we think we know about ourselves is suddenly no longer true. And I'd love to hear about how you came to this project and why you decided to write it now. Uh, well, maybe I should read the um, forward in order to explain, to answer the first part of your question and then think about it and try to answer the second part. Six months after my mother's death in 2012, I was diagnosed with a rare uterine cancer. I was given a hysterectomy and a 26% chance of five-year survival. Going off my arthritis drugs seems to have kept the cancer from returning, but by the beginning of 2013, 
I was stuck in a mobility scooter crippled by an autoimmune condition called Reiter's syndrome. And that's spelled R-E-I-T-E-R apostrophe S, not Reiter's in general are not afflicted with autoimmune conditions. Um, The Family Tooth is a cancer story sandwiched inside a grief and food memoir. But more than that, it's a story of hope and ultimately triumph. It's an account of the medical and psychological sleuthing that allowed, that enabled me a year later to walk again. The thread that pulls this book of essays together is food, both in terms of the dietary changes that helped me out of the scooter and onto my feet, and in the way I came to recognize my mother's appetite in my own. At the time of her death, I was not sympathetic to my mother's alcoholism. Over the course of the year that followed, as I learned both that I could control my arthritic pain through diet and that not not eating what I wanted day after day, 1,100 meals a year, was perhaps the hardest thing I'd ever done, I discovered a deeper compassion for my mother than I had previously imagined. So that's the very beginning. Uh, So those are the conditions under which, um, those are the conditions that inspired this, this book. And what kind of brought me to writing it was I was really trying hard to um, tune out all of the, you know, cancer, the arthritis, the grief, you know, all of the, all the stuff that was coming at me. I was trying hard to tune it out and write my next novel. And I really couldn't. And I felt really bad about it. And so I wrote to one of my favorite writers in the world. I wrote to David Mitchell and I said, what would you do if you were me? And we had, we'd had a kind of like, fan, star, correspondence previously, so I wasn't writing him out of the blue. Um, But he wrote back and he said, if it were me, um, I would have a lot of trouble concentrating on what I was, the fiction I was writing, even if it was, you know, some kind of intergalactic presidential debate, you know, like he would just kind of, you know, set the seventh dimension, you know, he just sort of riffed on it. Like, even so, I'd have a lot of trouble concentrating and I think I would try to write about my own experience because it's an area of it's a new area of expertise although albeit you know unwanted expertise and other people would benefit by what I had to say and I thought that was really generous and he also said I would do it as cleverly as possible I would write kind of a Trojan horse of a book so that people don't aren't like oh I feel sorry for her I don't want to read the book um which I thought was an interesting conceit. And he said, um, rather than writing a book that he might not be able to finish, because, you know, if you really are living with this anvil, um, he would write essays so that he would, he would have a sense that he could finish them and let it kind of grow essay by essay and maybe even let himself and the world think like, well, this might be the last one. It was really a generous, lovely thing to to write back to me, and and it made me feel like it gave me enormous permission to write about the things that obsessed me at that moment, which were survival and medical research. One of the essays in the book specifically talks about your experience on Humira, which is the drug that you were taking for your autoimmune disorder. And that essay on fear, um, you know, when it was released, it was a, a Kindle number one single right away. And it has really had a profound impact. And I'd love it if you might talk a little bit about that essay. On fear is the story of the... So I, I 
was diagnosed with this cancer and, um, and it was, it, there's kind of two pieces to it. One is about the medical research that made me conclude that I should not get radiation or chemo, which was a really scary conclusion to come to, but especially because my, I had one oncologist. So, uh, so this, it's a very rare uterine cancer. It's called leiomyosarcoma, which is a cancer of the smooth muscle tissue. We've got smooth muscle all over our bodies from our, our blood vessels to our intestines and more. Um, so, you know, if, if you've got it, it's kind of a problem. Um, so I, I was, I was given this diagnosis. I had a 26% chance of five-year survival. I, um, the one oncologist recommended I get radiation. One recommended I get chemo. I read all of the really bleak studies out there. And the conclusion was that neither radiation nor chemo had been shown to change that 26% figure whatsoever. It didn't prevent recurrence. It didn't increase survival. It was just, you know, let's throw something at it and hope for the best. And that wasn't good enough. I just felt like, well, if I'm a goner, I would like to have my last days in comfort. And if I am going to survive this, I need, I need to not put my body through that in order to be as strong as possible. It really looked like, you know, some people make it and some people don't. So I, um, so part, part of that is about sort of conquering my fear of, um, going against doctor's orders. And then the, and so, so the doctor said, okay. And then I had to wait because what happens if you, whether, whether you get radiation or chemo or not, you're going to get a CT scan every three months to, so that they can see if the cancer has grown. And so after I made my big decision, then I really just had to, had to wait until that CT scan came and not know whether I had made the right choice or not. And so on fear is about the techniques that I learned to survive those three months of, of fear and, and of playing that conversation in my head with the, with the oncologist over and over again. Like she would call and she would say, okay, you've got cancer. And I would have to come up with all right, you were right. And I was wrong. And the very last thing that I wound up writing in that essay, because of course you write it and then as you rewrite and rewrite and revisit, every edit is an opportunity to say a little, one little thing more. The very last thing I wound up saying is in all those months when I was playing that terrifying conversation in my head until I learned to not play it, to sing to myself instead, um, to give myself a little attention instead, it never occurred to me that I might get the phone call that said like, there's no cancer. And as it turned out, that's what, that's the phone call I got. There's so much in that. I love that, that moment of not playing the story and singing to yourself instead and, and the ways that we can shift our experiences and, and still be in the moment and still be present with something and have that reflection. And to realize that the, I, you know, I called it the fear video, that, that conversation, I realized that I was the person playing it. Like no one was making me watch it. I was making me watch it. So if I was doing it, I potentially had the power to do something else. That was, that was that shift. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's huge. And it's also about, um, 
getting a cat. That's the other thing that the essay is about is, um, and that is the cat that graces the cover of the book. She turned out to be, I just wound up treating her like my spiritual teacher. Like Mm. she just was, you know, she had no fear. She never thought about the future. She was right there. And um, just, you know, I had wanted a pet for so long and suddenly I couldn't travel because I might have to go get treatment. And so we, my partner and I were like, now's the time, let's do it. (laughs) And then, so just getting to fall in love with this like adorable, soft, present focused creature was so profoundly helpful at a very frightening time. Cats are wonderful creatures. They are wonderful creatures. And what was kind of amazing was that the cat wound up being this standing in for what I most feared also, because I have this, I my friend Samira brought her son over to my house and this little three-year-old had never seen a pet cat before. And at first he was terrified and kind of hid behind, hid in Samira's arms. And then he kind of looked up and hid again and looked up and was like, oh, she's mm-hmm. just standing there. I feel like underneath all the fear, you know, what's, what is it that's just standing there? And to acknowledge, like, yeah, I'm afraid of dying, like my death. That's what it is. And just to sort of see it instead of flinching from it, let me kind of relax into it a little bit. Like, well, it's going to happen now or later. So it's, you might as well just get familiar, not get morbid, but just get familiar. The way that they used to call a witch's cat her familiar. Um, So the, so that, she becomes this this source of comfort, both both because she's adorable, she's a little black cat, she's a pet, but also like, all right, it wouldn't get worse than that. That's what it is. Hmm. <laughs> That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. I want to talk about another piece that has, I think, probably had an impact on the the moving through of things, and that is your daily haiku practice. I'd love to hear the story of how that came to be and what that has meant for you in the time that you have had it. Let's see. I began writing, I, in spring of 1999, I encountered the haiku year, which is by seven friends, including Michael Stipe of REM and Tom Gilroy and Jim McKay, Anna Grace, Douglas Martin, Rick Roth. I'm sorry, seventh person. Um, and anyway, these seven friends got together and agreed to send each other a haiku a day for a year on a postcard. And I was completely charmed. I thought, what a great idea. And so I started doing that too. Uh, at first, it was an exchange with my with my best friend from college. And we still occasionally exchange them. She she sends me haiku when she, when she um, travels. Um, and I thought it would just be for a year that I would be sending these haiku. And as it turned out, it's now... 16 years later, and I'm still writing them every day. And now I post them on Twitter and Facebook. But what that, I mean, long ago, when I was 14 years old, I began keeping a diary because I felt like all of the days were sort of blurring together. And keeping a diary is a conscious way of making those days stand apart from one another in my mind, in my memory. And writing this daily haiku is exactly that. It, 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 what it did was it shifted the way that I went through my life and my days so that I feel like I'm sort of walking through the world with this butterfly net uh, and I don't know what's going to fly into it. It's, but something always does just being open to some sort of gift from the world every day 
has made me live more in the present and more in the waking world of people and nature and the city in a way that I think it would be very easy for a bookish person like me to hide out and only live in words. And so going out into the world to see what it has to give me every day has, has changed that for the better and made me live more vividly and more gratefully. So I encourage it. I love that. I think there is this way that you talk about the reason for keeping a diary is to differentiate the days. And I had never really thought about it that way. And I think that's a a really fabulous observation about not just the the benefits of keeping a diary or a journal, but also a way to really use that as a a tool for deeper reflection and to really recognize these days, you know, what are the days that we remember? Usually they have something big or meaningful that happens. Um, but what about the other days? Maybe every day could be a day that you remember at least a little piece of. Yeah. So it's like getting more, getting more bang for your buck, getting more life for your life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I now, you know, I teach at Columbia and I, I teach undergrad fiction on an adjunct basis. And I make my students do something that's inspired by this haiku, by, by the, these, these daily haiku, which is called the postcard exercise, where they have to choose somebody in their lives, ideally not a boyfriend or girlfriend, because I, I don't want to eavesdrop on their lives in that way. So <laughs> they have somebody in their lives and write to that person um, one postcard a day every day for the whole semester. And they have to type those postcards up and turn them into me. Mm. And at first, people are like, oh, no, I got this section where I have to write every day. And by the end, they kind of love it. Yeah, I think that's a great practice. And they wind up, they just wind up writing so much more than they thought they would. And I think seeing so much more than they thought they would. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your fiction writing. Many listeners who come to this might be familiar with your novels, um, The Tea House Fire and The Last Noon. And one of the things that is so rich for me about your writing is the the level of care and research that clearly is present in the way that you construct a novel. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what doing that research means for you and, and why you find it important. Well, there's a, there's a way in which the question is, a lovely way in which the question is unanswerable because, I mean, the, the deeper question is, why do we love what we love? And, you know, as any of us who have had to come out to our parents can tell you, you just do. You can't help it. That's how you are. <laughs> so I don't know why I am more researchy than than the next person down the road, but um, but I I am drawn to what I cannot know in my own experience, and drawn to coming as close to, as it coming as close as possible to it through as many different ways as I can. I don't know why, like, well, you know, why not just write about your own time since you want to be close to it, but somehow doing that extra work of getting, of finding my own way in, um, is what 
excites me and gets me going. So, um, for example, with Tea House Fire, I studied Japanese tea ceremony for five years in New York and then five very intensive weeks in Kyoto. And it was kind of like, you know, you pull on the strawberry runner and then you find that the network spreads through the whole yard. Like there's no end to it in a way. So I started just, you know, going to tea ceremony class and then I was reading about tea utensils and then I was reading about Japanese material culture and then I was reading about Japanese history and then I was learning Japanese. Like there was no, in order to, and what, so what crystallized that for me, what sort of made me need to do this research was I was taking tea ceremony classes and I was reading. So I, I read one of the books in the tea ceremony school library and it was the lives of the grandmasters and it was all men, 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 men. And then there was this one woman who single-handedly changed the fate of the art in the 1880s by getting tea ceremony into the curriculum of the newly founded girls schools. And her name was Yukako Sen. And I thought, there's a woman in tea history. Who'd have thunk it? And it sounded like her husband retired in his early 30s when his when their son was maybe 10, which means she was really running the show for at least a decade um, or more. And reading about her, the hair went up on the back of my neck and I needed to, I didn't need to know her. I didn't need to write a biography. I just saw, I, I, I had a, I vividly imagined someone changing history in this way. And I wanted to get as close to that possibility, as close to that imaginative place as possible. And so then there was, I needed to know so much about the Meiji Restoration, the relationship of of Japan to the West during the nineteenth century, um, what people, how people wore their clothes, and what they when they started wearing Western shoes with their kimono, and what they used to put up their hair, and what would be a good gift. Like there was no end to it in the best of possible ways, and in doing all that research. I actually found myself making leaps of the imagination that turned out to be correct. Like I decided to ascribe to her um, mass production of tea utensils and only to find out later on that um, they came, that began happening exactly when I said it, it did. Like it was Mm. kind of thrilling to get that close that I could imagine something as accurately as possible. And I think that that material, that love of material culture and of what you can, uh, Sorry, I'm going to jump in here and say Elaine Scarry in, um, I think, one of her books on beauty, if I remember correctly, made this kind of charming, bizarre claim that I think there really is something to it, that the reason why so many poets write about flowers is because a flower is of a size that would actually fit inside your skull. Like, it's so easy to imagine because it literally could fit inside your mind. And in both books, there Mm. are resonant small objects that are my points of access into other worlds. So for example, in The Last Nude, when um, my character Rafaela is sitting in the bathtub, sort of thinking about how she's annoyed with her roommate, who she kind of has a crush on for, you know, letting her, letting her, her boyfriend stay at their, in their apartment, like a zillion nights in a row. And she's sort of thinking about that. And as she's looking down, she sees the ivory cap of a shaving brush, which is something that, you know, every man had back in the day. And I see 
you know, only in specialty shops now and then now. And somehow having that, that cap that I had seen a picture of allowed me to enter the 1920s in a way that I think that just like saying 1920s wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned the last Newton. And one of the things that I think probably is part research, but more likely part of lived experience and interaction is your work is widely recognized and well awarded for its queer characters, its authentic, genuine queer characters. And you are the only writer thus far to receive the Stonewall Award from the American Library Association twice, one for each of your novels. And there is a way that you write queer characters that one friend of mine described it as innocuous, where they're so real, they are just like your gay best friend or your aunt who has a female partner. They are just a part of our lives. And I think that's really important to recognize And I'm curious how writing those characters is for you in that particular aspect. Well, I am a queer character myself, so I write the books that I want to read, but I'm not, I, queerness is part of my life, but not the only part of my life. So I think that I'm bringing that to the books that I write. But I think that there's um even doing that, even just making a queer life central to a novel, there's a kind of tendentiousness to it that I I like. Like there's a there's a a kind of stubbornness to it. Like, well, yes, I know that in most novels you read, this is the secondary character or doesn't appear at all. And I'm just gonna ch- change the focus here a little because this is what's interesting to me. And it won't necessarily be interesting to everyone, but I don't care. And that feels kind of great. Like the world is <laughs> big enough that um, someone has to fill the the dearth of, you know, like there are people who consider themselves well, well-read who could go from cradle to grave and never read a, a novel with a lesbian protagonist. And I feel sorry for them. And I'm going to write those novels. Mm-hmm. There was a moment when I was writing Tea House Fire and I thought that Aurelia, who is my um, Caucasian American, Franco-American point of view character, uh, she travels to Japan with with her missionary family and is separated from them and is taken in by Yukako, who is the tea master's daughter in Kyoto. And she falls in love with Yukako, who is kind of her um, employer and her sort of surrogate older sister. I thought that because this book was so much about Yukako that Aurelia would go to her grave pining after Yukako and, you know, that would be the great love of her life. And then I was five sixths of the way through the first draft and I just thought it's not like the world is crawling with lesbian novels with happy endings. Like, you know, you walk into a bookstore, you don't see that on the front table. You know, mm-hmm. might not see that on any table. You might really have to dig for it. And then when you find the lesbian the lesbian novels, a lot of them are really tragic. (laughs) Yes. So I thought, you know, I'm not stepping on any toes here. I'm not rewriting any, you know, I'm not rehashing anything here. If I, if I write a happy ending, 
I'm allowed. And I did. It was it was kind of thrilling. I felt like I owed it to myself as a lesbian reader to to write that happy ending. Like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I love that. I love that. And as someone who has read a lot of lesbian novels and also really loves a happy ending, um, when I read that book, it was, I believe, the first time I read a book that had a lesbian protagonist with a happy ending. And it was such a thrill. I feel so vindicated hearing you say that. Yes. Well, and what's what's kind of great is, you know, my partner, Sharon Marcus, is a Victorianist. And so at the same time as I was writing Tea House Fire, she was reading all of these diaries of Victorian women who, some of whom were married or considered themselves married to other women and willed their property to one another and were buried together and had their pets together and wrote worshipful poems to their pets together. You know, like they were lesbians. Um, <laughs> and it sounds like many of them had like perfectly happy lives. Like if you think about, if you think about things through the, through the lens of your expectations, if you think about things through the lens of the culture that you've received, like then the only interesting story is the tragic story. But if you think of things through the material witnesses to what actually happens, there are a lot more stories out there. Definitely. Like these diaries, they're not sad. Yeah, they're not all like, oh, I'm so tormented. The love of my life has just married her, married this guy. Like some <laughs> of them are just like, yeah, well, we're thinking of buying this country house together, but it looks like we need a, we need a, it needs a lot of work. Like so there. <laughs> How utterly mundane. Exactly. Exactly. And perfect. So that's what you mean by innocuous. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Just because you've got the big L doesn't mean you're going to get the lightning bolt. So I must confess that one of my favorite tidbits of fact about you is the influence that Virginia Woolf and Annie Dillard had on your writing and your life as a reader. And I often think about the way that so much of the story of Virginia Woolf is painted in the the tragedy of her death and and the the pain that she felt in her life but one of the things that i always wish more people talked about and and was more aware is that she had many many women lovers and they were some of the happiest times of her life and and we don't get to see that and so i think that sort of is also part of that that narrative of the, the lesbian tragedy and and what if we look at the story from a different angle and and pick up the other pieces um, but I would also love to hear about what it meant for you to discover the writing of Virginia Woolf and Annie Dillard as a reader I do love Virginia Woolf I especially love Orlando and one reason I kept the heroine of the tea house fire alive as long as I did was so that she could witness its publication. I really love the idea that you could be born a Victoria, a, Vic, a Victorian and die a modern. I Just to straddle those two very, very different times literarily is kind of thrilling to me. And I, and I, so I kind of, I just kind of snuck it in. Like, I love it that this, that this character is born in Elizabethan and but the time that, that she leaves us, there are planes flying overhead. And I really love it that Aurelia is born into the West and really 
becomes this Japanese Westerner and then changes again and comes back. Like, I, I think that our lives can straddle so many different possibilities and it's part of the pleasure of, of writing and living is, is trying to give, give voice to all of them. I first read Virginia Woolf in, in high school and was just so drawn to the voluptuously gorgeous language and her commitment to the moment. I think maybe that's part of the desire to write a journal and differentiate the days from one another is to, is to just kind of soak in as, as much as one can out of, out of each moment. And um, as for Annie Dillard, also high school, and I think she was assigned in a writing class. And I had been a, I had been almost exclusively a reader of science fiction and fantasy when I was a teenager. And what Annie Dillard and Virginia Woolf's writing in both cases did for me was make me fall in love with this world. And because they lived in it so intensely, they, they experienced it in such rigorous fashion where there's so much that I think that it's very easy and it's very easy as it is very easy to let the days sort of swoosh by without really paying attention to them or differentiating them. It's also very easy to live in a world of cliches and assumptions and to encounter the writing of someone who is investigating all of them the way that a writer of science fiction or fantasy would like, okay, I've got to start over from scratch. There are two moons here and like water freezes at a different temperature. Like, you know, <laughs> so it, I felt like they were doing that, but about this world. And I think that that same sort of remaking is part of why I'm such a research, a researcher um, in both Tianspire and Last Nude. Like, yes, there are a set of assumptions and givens, but if you can just experience it intensely enough and carefully enough, maybe there's something new to be said. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love them and why I you know, try to bring that kind of specificity to my work. Well, then also, I think you mentioned the lushness yeah. of their writing. That for me is what drew me to them very early on. I remember being in an an undergraduate creative nonfiction seminar and um, my professor, who was my mentor, Susan Carroll Hauser, she assigned us to read Annie Dillard's The Death of a Moth. I was just thinking of The Death of a Moth. Well, I was thinking of Virginia Woolf's Death of the Moth, and then I was thinking of Annie Dillard's Death of the Moth. Well, the assignment was to read both of them. Mm. And then our writing assignment attached with that was to, to write a parallel story to something that we had either experienced or that another person had written about. Oh, great. It was such a fabulous assignment, but I just remember, like, I was like, I don't want to talk about the writing. I just want to talk about the death of the moth. <laughs> like, I don't care which one we talk about. I was, let's just talk about that. Like, let's just be there. Oh my God, that image of the moth getting stuck in the candle flame and then humming a wick <laughs> is so fabulous and so much about what art is for me, both consuming it and producing it. It's a way of just living more intensely. Like, you know, your, your head turns into fire. Like, yes, that's it. That is so much it. And I that essay and that scene and, and really everything in Holy the Firm. The other part of that book that really comes to mind for me is the story of the plane crash. Right. And and the way that that story is told. And, you know, I mean, it's 
it's probably the least known Annie Dillard book. You know, it's like Annie Dillard wrote Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and and the result of that was so complex and overwhelming and suddenly being thrust into the spotlight that you don't want um, to to find a way to stay true to self and art in in this way of moving across the country away from everything that you know and still cultivating that space and and being really present in it I think that to me is so, that's such a valuable lesson, you know, to think about. You can still have that. I was thinking too about that, about that plane crash and recalling that why that plane crash is in the book is because that child gets, um, I think, plane fuel or something happens where her face is burned so that we have the image of the moth where the head becomes fire. And then we have like the literal image of this child who gets burned. And so the idea of like, have, you know, your head becoming fire both has this sort of aesthetic ecstasy and this like true experience tragedy to it. That's kind of both there in the same, mm-hmm. in the same image. And I think that that's what I was going for with the black cat in the fear essay that it's, both this source of comfort and it's a source of comfort because it's like dear and alive and and it's this like source of fear and ultimately comfort because it's that thing you're, that you're afraid of that you can see finally yeah like I think she taught me how to do that that's what I'm trying to this ambivalent symbol um that or and it's not even a symbol like she it was a real moth it was a real plane crash it was a real black cat but um but this this resonant reality uh, mm. carefully crop and see for both what it is and so much more as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I do I do love what you're saying about like all right. So what if you what happens once you've made yourself as Annie Dillard the famous person? How do you remember to be Annie Dillard the the real person wrestling with? what it means to be alive and using language to do that wrestling. And um, I think that's gorgeous. And I think that, I think that that's so much part of the sort of in and out experience of being a writer, sort of like the inhale, exhale, like, like mm. you're exhaling into the world, you're this public presence. And then you kind of just have to go back inside and see like, all right, who am I now? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've always found so fascinating is that, you know, Annie Dillard is this famous recluse. Right. You know, she she does very few public appearances. She she taught, but, you know, very sort of sporadically. And and she was very particular about when she would teach. And so I just it's there is that way of, of finding that balance and. You know, when I when I hear people talk about Elena Ferrante, I I am reminded of of Annie Dillard. Mm. You know that that idea of almost or practical anonymity. Mm. I'm really curious the best advice you've ever received. Well, I I think that advice is kind of situational. Like the advice that David Mitchell, God bless him, gave me about about going ahead and writing my book is one thing, but I, I guess you know you get the advice that you get great advice when you need it most. So when I was really heartbroken, my mother said, um, 
I had just been through a big breakup and my mother said, I hope you get a little more set in your own ways. I thought that was so, she was so bad at being comforting. She was so not interested in my having had this relationship in the first place. She was just like, oh, la, 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 make it, make it stop, I think was how she felt. But she was able to rise to the occasion and really share what she had to teach me, which is like, you could live alone and be perfectly content and why not give it a try? I thought that was, I thought that was lovely. Like you don't necessarily have to be defined by your, by, by your partner and good advice, whether you're single or partnered, I think. And then the other thing that came to mind was, um, oh yes, I had a, I had a high, my favorite high school English teacher who, um, taught me how to annotate in the margins and, and had us read the Odyssey. And she just stays with me. I think I think of her every day. Liz Cutler, I was thinking about having a child when I was, oh, probably 19 or 20. And she said, try to put it off as long as you, until you try to put it off until you want it more than anything. And truth is I never wanted it more than anything. And I'm glad I put it off. That is, that's great advice. And not just about having children. Yeah, really. I'd love it if you would um, read the afterword from the family tooth. Imagine my surprise when, flipping through my co- my mother's college yearbook, I discovered her undergraduate thesis topic: outer space exploration, some legal aspects. Outer space. I'm puzzled, given my childhood love of black holes and supernovas, that my mother never mentioned an interest in outer in space exploration to me. Did pain bow her heaven-turned head? I have written two novels about aesthetically disciplined bodies, one about a tea ceremony teacher, one about an artist's model, and now this account of a medically disciplined body. As I end this book, I see its uneasily overlapping genres, the memoir and the medical narrative, peeling apart into two separate agendas for future work. My new fiction is all about mothers and daughters, and I've been taking anatomy classes at the community college. I know that I, I know I'm not alone when I think of Frida Kahlo, who made the body central to her work, both as a painter and originally as a student of medicine. I hope something comes of this story. I made my rheumatologist promise she would tell the FDA what had happened to me after three years on Humira. For a long time, I had the superstitious feeling that if I sued the drug company, the cancer would come back. By the time I shook that feeling, the statute of limitations was almost up and the lawyer would take the case. I don't need to tell my story in court, I realize now, but I do need to tell it to you. I wish my mother and I had been able to unite against the common enemy of our disease, but I think she knew that if she had acknowledged her arthritic pain to her family or a doctor, she would have been told to stop drinking. For this reason, it may be, she was unable to invite or offer compassion, a word Ursula K. Le Guin defines using its Latin roots, compassio, as suffering with. Instead of showing compassion for one another's pain, we suffered separately. It's 2015, and I'm still figuring it out. This arthritis, this second life I've rested from cancer, this tally of what my mother left me. Pain narrowed our lives. And so did the arrangements we made to avoid it. My mother filled the black shaft of her pain with vodka and lay suspended in it. The delicate bridge of food I've strung across mine requires constant reweaving. But there are three differences between us. 
she chose a treatment that knocked her unconscious, and I have decided to stay awake. I am going to keep working until I find a safe treatment that affords me the broadest life I can have. And this, my mother chose a treatment that shut the rest of us out, and I refused to. And last, this. I still see joy in Frida Kahlo's work, despite the wheelchair, the spinal injury, the polio twisted leg. I am here, her self-portraits announce in brilliant color and exultant line. I don't deny my suffering, but I exceed it. Arthritis may have sucked the stars out of my mother's sky, but she found them again in sparkling beads, even when she had to wear braces on her hands to string them. My mother recognized joy in pleasure that denied pain. I recognize joy in the will to make beauty that exceeds it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Alice, it has been so wonderful to spend this time with you. I just feel so blessed and so grateful that we got to have this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. This has just been a treat. I really appreciate it. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you online at ellisavery.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with personal essayist and pop culture thought provoker, Laura Bogart. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.